welcome to another episode of Fishing for Problems, a Spanning Boundaries podcast. This week and next, we will be re-releasing two episodes from the first iteration of Fishing for Problems. This week, we're sharing the conversation I had with Will Richardson in 2018. Will is a former public school educator, he's an author, and he's co-founder of the Big Questions Institute. When I spoke with Will, an organization he worked for, Modern Learners, had sent out a list of recommended texts, and one of them was A Skeptical Visionary by Seymour Saracen. I hadn't heard of Saracen and was intrigued by the book. I read it, and it resonated deeply with me, so he asked Will to come on and talk about Saracen. If you haven't read The Skeptical Visionary, I would strongly encourage you to take a look. A few things before getting started. I still think our conversation is highly relevant. Will and I discussed the importance of knowing what we mean when we use the word learning, and he recalls an experience of being with a large group of school administrators who all had varying definitions of this term. So I would ask you, if you're a school leader, a district leader, a teacher, a parent, someone interested in education, do you have a definition of learning? If yes, what is it? I think this is a critical question to ask, along with what the purpose of schooling should be, and both of these are addressed in our conversation. I do want to say that in my last job, I used to run workshops where we encouraged school and district leaders to reconceptualize students as learners and teachers as experienced learners. I'm more skeptical of this framing due to my introduction to Gert Bista's work. Bista critiques what he calls the learnification of schooling. And although that's a topic of conversation for another time, I did want to mention it because I referenced these workshops that I used to do and wanted to share that I'm not as convinced of that specific approach. I also want to say that one of the reasons why I love Saracen and also Seymour Pepper, two relatively unknown Seymours, is because they both think about big ideas in K-12. And in my experience, there just isn't enough space given to these bigger ideas, like what the purpose of schooling should actually be. Finally, and this is something I'm very sensitive to, I want to make a distinction between systems, in this case, the schooling system, and individuals within those systems. In this case, school and district leaders and teachers. Systems are no doubt made up of individuals, but those systems can influence individual action. Will and I are not trying to critique teachers or administrators. I'm a former teacher. My wife is a teacher. The work educators do on a daily basis, especially during a time of COVID, is truly remarkable. And the work is hard. And that's what we're trying to say. Entertaining big ideas is incredibly hard work. And I don't want to speak for Will, but I would guess that he would agree with me in saying that it's work that should be done and can be done, but it takes time. It takes effort. It takes courage. So with all that being said, I hope you enjoy the conversation with Will Richardson. So Will Richardson, thanks so much for joining the, the podcast. I'm incredibly excited to have you on today to talk about Seymour Saracen. Yeah, my pleasure. I always like taking a, like talking about Seymour Saracen. <laughs> uh, so before getting into his ideas, I would love just to hear... Uh, your your background on uh, on Saracen and why he's been so influential in the work that you uh, you've done. So I was introduced to Saracen by Gary Steger, who uh, is someone who's pretty well known in the world in terms of the maker movement and who has been a progressive educator for three decades, um, doing just interesting work all over the world. Gary's turned out to be a good friend, and actually, Gary's the one that's introduced me to a lot of these kinds of, I like to call them truth tellers about education. Um, Saracen, Frank Smith, um, Deborah Meyer, um, all sorts of others that uh, I had never heard of in my 22 years of education and five years or six years after that, even of consulting, they were just, um, you know, kind of uh, um, idea, people with ideas that really had never come across my my reading or my research, but when I started reading them, especially Saracen, and it's interesting because Saracen, even uh, more so than like Seymour Papert, who's another example, um, and Gary's a huge Papert disciple, and, and Papert is someone who, I mean, it's just amazing that no one's ever heard of, you know, very few people have ever heard of him and read him. But Saracen, even more than Papert, I think, um, and then Saracen's even, I think, less known than Papert, if that's possible. But <laughs> Saracen, for some reason, just really resonated with me um, when I was reading him. And um, while Papert is a lot about technology and computers and that kind of intersection between learning and kids and, and technology, which is really important, Saracen really wasn't about technology very much at all. Um, he's just about learning. And he's just about forcing people to go to the very big questions and to speak, like I said before, the, I think, very important truths about 
um, learning and schooling and classrooms and power dynamics within schools and um, all of the things about schools that are challenging in terms of um, thinking about them in ways that really lead to deep and powerful learning or productive learning in the way that he talks about it. So at any rate, long story short, for the last five, six years, I've been quoting Saracen almost everywhere that I go um, and, and asking his question, which, you know, to me, his main question is, you know, what do you mean when you say that word learning? I mean, that's the, the title of the book that really started my journey with him. And, um, and I can't tell you how much that question has framed my work um, in the last three to four years. And I also can't tell you how shocked I am at how few people have an answer to that question in education. It's really stunning on lots of different levels. So anyway, Saracen is, uh, is one of those guys, again, I think he wrote somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 books. Um, and uh, many of them are about education, specifically about school change and school reform. Um, and yet his ideas didn't really you know, have a very big reach in terms of uh, the education conversation, unfortunately. Yep. Yeah. And I, I was in the same boat and I was introduced to Sarah Saracen um, because I got your list of books, um, your list of books to read. And yeah. I uh, was a classroom teacher for about eight years. Um, I went through a master's program in education. Um, I've been working uh, for an ed tech company for two years. I had never heard of Saracen before. Mm-hmm. And um, today we're going to talk about the, the skeptical visionary, but I agree that, um, you know, people like him, uh, so-called truth tellers, people who are trying to get at the heart of, uh, of teaching and learning, um, they are, it's just, it's baffling how little known they are. Um, and I think, you know, I haven't read um, a whole lot of his other work, um, but it seems like the skeptical, skeptical visionary is sort of a good entry point. Um, it, it seems like an anthology of a lot of the, the work that he's done. Um, so uh, within that book, um, the, the editor um, ascribes 12 ideas to, to Saracen. Um, 12 ideas or concepts. And um, when I was uh, sort of formulating an idea for um, this podcast, uh, I was thinking that we could go through those um, and uh, and talk about them. And we, we agreed upon, I think, six that we are both interested in. Um, we're going to break them up into two groups of three. But, um, you know, when you when you look at them, they're all connected to each other. Um, and uh, they all get to the heart of the question that you asked, what is learning um, and how to create the most productive learning environments for students and for teachers. Um, and so uh, I think what we're going to try to do today is to go through these ideas and concepts. Um, I think it'll be helpful to uh, just state what the idea is and maybe a quick translation um, and to talk about the assumptions, um, the underlying assumptions involved in each of these ideas. And then um, thinking about what, what do we think about those? What questions do we have um, that we can ask that, that might get to the root causes of those problems? And then finally, what are some solutions? Um, these could be pie-in-the-sky solutions. These could be practical solutions that we can put into place um, you know, uh, relatively quickly. Um, what have we seen work? But I think that that last piece... Um, you know, and I imagine you'll agree with this too, that last piece can be missing where you have a lot of people who look at the world of ed and provide criticism, but are unwilling to actually offer up solutions to problems. Um, and so uh, I think I think it'll be important, um, certainly for people, you know, listening who aren't aware of Saracen or who maybe do not have um, a whole lot of knowledge about the world of education to not just learn about some of these ideas, but to have some concrete um, action steps going forward. Yeah, and I think just just briefly too, um, just for the sake of grounding this conversation, um, I think I, I'd offer up Saracen's definition of what learning is. I mean, he asks the question and then he builds on um, pretty much everything from his definition, which is that he calls it productive learning. He says productive learning is learning which engenders wanting to learn more, absent wanting to learn more, the context is unproductive. So, for him, um, you know, you, you really only learn something if, you, if it somehow touches you, if it somehow is relevant to you enough to continue to pursue it. 
Um, and, and again, one of the reasons that I think, uh, you know, again, he, he works for me is that resonated so much for me as well. Um, when I thought about the things that I had learned, you know, most deeply in my life, they were all things that I wanted to learn more about. And those things that I didn't really care to continue to learn, um, obviously, um, didn't make a big impact on my life and didn't, didn't really remember much of it. You know, that's kind of, I think most people's experience in school where, those things that they care about, they they really spend their time with those and those other things they just get through, you know, they just kind of try to try to get the grade or pass the class or whatever it is that they want to do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it makes me think about, I, I, um, I interviewed um, Edward D.C., uh, who's a psychologist at the University of Rochester, whose work uh, is on motivational theory and extrinsic versus intrinsic motivation. And um, a lot of the research that he's done shows that um, you know that, that intrinsic motivation when you're when you're learning something that, that those ideas get retained, and when you're asked to you know learn something, when you're asked to memorize something um, for the purpose of a test um, or you know something you're not interested in, it's just not gonna it's not gonna sit in there. Um, and uh, it's interesting too when you say that the idea of um, the things that we remember. Um, I had recently reached out to uh, Brian Kaplan, who was a professor at um, George Mason University. Uh, mm-hmm. He uh, he recently came out with a book that is is definitely skeptical of the educational system. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was curious, because um, I'm going into this EDD program, if he had ideas for um, you know what I might might be interested in studying. And he mentioned adult retention. Um, and why is it that, uh, or how, how do we go about remembering some of the things in school um, that we learn? And why is it that some of the stuff we, we, that we learned, um, we do not remember? And uh, I think it all gets into that idea of, you know, was it a productive context for learning? Was it something we were interested in? Um, yeah. Or uh, was it just something that we were forced basically to learn? No doubt. And, and again, you know, I definitely want to get into these points, but I think that the, the interesting thing about that now is, you know, that in this moment, we have so much more access to the things that we want to learn more about. And it's becoming exceedingly um, easy to pursue what our passions at depth in many ways that didn't exist even five years ago. Um, And I think that that's what makes Saracen's definition so much more powerful right now and so much more important, you know, that that wanting to learn more part is not hard anymore. It's really easy to do that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's actually a part of what we've been trying to do during some of uh, the workshops that I do with Bright Bites and sort of getting mm-hmm. folks to rethink their classroom instruction. Um, the idea of uh, previously living in an information poor, experience-rich world and now living more in an information-rich, um, experience-poor environment and students no longer need to be consumers of information. Um, they can be creators. Right. And, uh, I think once we get into that space, recognize that. Um, you know, that's a big step toward um, achieving those kinds of learning environments right. that Harrison talks about. Agreed. Um, great. So why don't we get into it? So uh, of the 12 ideas, we're going to start with number three. Um, and so this is a perfect segue. Um, the overarching purpose of school ought to be that children should want to keep learning more about themselves, others, in the world, yet that purpose is mostly ignored. Um, so, you know, my translation for that is that schools should be places for, for learning um, and they should be cathedrals that inspire kids to reach for the stars. Um, that uh, we should create these productive contexts uh, of learning so that students are able to take ownership over their, their education and study the things that they're interested in. Um, anything to add to sort of that, that translation? Well, no, I, I mean, I think what's interesting is that, um, and again, these are uh, Robert Fried's kinds of um, um, synthesis of, of Saracen's ideas, but the way that, that Fried writes it is, you know, he kind of asked the question out of Saracen's mouth, is there anything that would be more important than having making sure that kids leave wanting to learn more, right? Um, and and I, I think that's a great question, and I, I, I don't think there is anything more important. I think, you know, our seminal question in education is, are kids learning? I mean, that's the whole, that's the starting point. Are kids learning? And it can be, are they learning our stuff? Or are they learning their stuff? But regardless of that, that's why they go to school, so they learn things. And um, 
what what I think is interesting again is that allusion in that part to um, have few schools articulate their their kind of uh, uh, putting that question or that answer at the forefront of their work, uh, situating their work into that question, right? Um, and and how it changes everything basically if you go there first, you know, if you start with that. That's a very different path and a very different practice and a very different kind of mission and vision that end up um, emanating from that than if it's we got to get our kids into college, you know, or we want to make our kids' career in college ready. Um, and I think that a lot of the things that schools, a lot of the reasons that schools are struggling right now is there's that dissonance and that kind of friction between those two ways of thinking about the world and thinking about the work in schools. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I love that. You know, is there any other question that matters more? Piece, um, and I think most people have struggled uh, answering that in the affirmative. Yep, yep. Um, so uh, inherent in that idea and concept, um, some assumptions: schools are not places where students are learning more about themselves. Uh, one of the things that research I think shows: students leave schools less curious and less interested in learning. Right. Um, Schools in their current form do not exist to inspire learning. Um, schools exist to teach students how to pass tests. Students are taught concepts that bear little resemblance to each other, to the so-called real world. Uh, and that also the purpose of schooling should be to inspire students, to really you know, create that love of learning, um, which I think is an assumption that you would hope that a lot of people in education would believe, and I think most do, but they're also... You know, you might find some people who, you know, might not think that the purpose of schooling is to actually inspire students. Um, it's to get them through to, you know, second grade to third grade to fourth grade to high school mm -hmm. to college. Um, and, uh, and so, um, you know, moving on from, from there, um, what do you, what do you feel like is the generally stated or agreed upon purpose of schooling? Not thinking about what Saracen thinks the purpose of schooling should be, but um, what do we feel like schools are, are currently doing, and what's the evidence of that? Well, I, I mean, I think the most frequent phrase that I hear is that we need to, schools are there to make kids, kids college and career ready. Um, I, that seems to be the kind of boilerplate um, answer that you get when you ask people, well, why should we send kids to school? Um, there used to be also that um, that kind of line around, well, we have to make sure that kids are able to participate in a democracy to be good citizens, to, you know, to prepare them to live in this society, which I still think is a goal or should be a goal. Um, certainly, there are certain things that we need to know about the world in which we live specifically, you know. Um, but I, I, I do think that, that uh, college and career ready um, future ready now is the other one that I'm, I find interesting, right? Um, I think all of those are kind of catchphrases that are open to interpretation, um, you know, to some extent, but that miss, again, the idea that um, what we really want to focus on, especially today, is developing kids as learners, you know, developing them as really powerful, curious, creative learners who, as you alluded to before, can create things, share things, go out and solve real problems. Um, it's not about, you know, getting uh, high enough SAT scores or, you know, taking AP tests or going that path to get ready for college as much as it's not about necessarily, um, you know, having some type of, of technical knowledge or, or content knowledge that will prepare you for a job. I mean, I think the expectation is these days that you have more and more people are talking about the soft skills, you know, those, the, the ideas that you're curious, you're creative, all that kind of stuff. Again, collaborative. And then you can learn the skills that you need to learn for any specific job that you take on or any particular career. I mean, you know, the other piece of this too is I think everyone agrees that 90%, if not more, of what we end up doing in our lives, we learn on the job. Mm -hmm. um, it's not something that, you know, we, we pull up from school, I mean, certain uh, very specific professions, obviously, I think college and, and that path prepares us for those. But even then, um, 
the, the, the question becomes, are you a learner? Can you learn on the fly? Can you learn with other people? Can you ask the right questions? Can you solve problems? You know, all those things. Um, yet those things aren't really on the test. Those things are not what are measured, hard to measure. So um, we, we kind of uh, devaluate them or devalue, I should say devalue them um, in terms of the, the larger way that we assess whether or not we're doing our work well and whether or not kids are succeeding. That's another one of my favorite words. You can define what that means yeah. too in whatever context. So, I mean, I, I, think, I think that, uh, I think we're not doing a terrible job on what our stated goals are, but I do think that the goals might need to be a little bit different from what we're saying. And uh, again, if the idea is that you want kids to be really powerful learners in schools, the reality is, they may be doing okay on those SATs and AP tests and whatever else, but they're not doing powerful productive learning very much. Um, and that's going to require a shift in our practice and the way we think about the whole enterprise. Yeah, and when you, I think when you sort of shift the, the goal from college and career ready to creating, you know, inspired, productive learners, right. um, the college and career ready piece, you would think, would just take care of itself. Um, no doubt. But, but again, you know, it goes back and, and we could spend the whole hour talking about the why nots and the barriers and the reasons why this is really hard. But one of the reasons it is really hard is because that expectation of college, when college admissions officers are looking at, you know, whether or not to accept a, a student, I mean, the, the bulk of what they're looking at are those measurable things. Yeah. It's not so much, um, is this child really curious and creative and all those types of things. I think more and more they're trying to find evidence of that, but that's certainly not something that um, is the first pass, let's say, (laughs) in terms of what they look at the application. Yeah, of course. Um, So a couple questions uh, building off of that. Um, One, how do we get to this place where everything needs to be measured in the world of education? and two, uh, another question. I have two kiddos. Um, I know you have um, some kids. I remember hearing that your 18-year-old decided not to go to college, uh, post-secondary institution, right. that she um, is living in New York. Uh, right. And uh, I guess the, the, the question I have there is, what did you want your kids to leave with at the end of high school? Um, and as a, I've got a three-year-old and a, and a newborn, and I think about that a lot as I look forward to their um, their educational experiences. Well, I think like every parent, I wanted them to be happy. I wanted them to find joy in their lives. I wanted them to have passion about something. I wanted them to uh, want to learn uh, about the things that they cared about, uh, to make good decisions. You know, all those things that I think parents would say. I don't think that's any different. I wanted them to be prepared to be on their own, to be independent. Um, and I, I think for the most part, they were. Um, I mean, like you said, my daughter has been, uh, she's been in New York City now for two years and learned uh, a whole bunch about life and that I think is going to serve her very well down the road without necessarily, you know, going to college in the traditional sense. I mean, she's been taking some courses, but even those are not. I struggle with her taking courses online and the way that she's doing it because I'm not so sure that those courses are really productive in Saracen's words, again, right? But they are checking some boxes that make her feel a little bit better and, and, you know, will prepare her for that path that she wants to take that path. So it kind of goes back again to those barriers or expectations that are in place that make it difficult to say that those things aren't important, even though we know they may not be effective, if that makes any sense, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but I don't, I don't think anybody wakes up, you know, any parent wakes up going, gee, I hope my kids are straight A student, you know. Um, I hope they, they get perfect scores on the SAT. I don't think that's at the top of the list. Um, I think at the top of the list is, you know, I hope they end up being good people. I hope they end up being, you know, able to, to navigate the world in ways that are healthy and, and are, are productive and contribute and, and all those types of things. Well, so when you use those words, happy, joy, passion, um, I'm not sure how many high schoolers would describe their high school experience using those words. Yeah, probably not many. <laughs> At least classroom experience. Classroom experience. And um, I'm curious, so get, we've talked about, um, you know, what we feel like 
Um, the purpose of schooling should be creating those productive contexts for learning, inspiring learners to want to learn more about themselves. Um, how do we how do we get to a place where um, the, those concepts of joy, of happiness, of, of passion um, are you know exuded among um, high school students and are just part of the the natural makeup of a of a community learning? Well, you know, yeah, and the key word that you used is most. Not all. I mean, I, I know of lots of kids who are happy and joyful and motivated in school. Um, and the, the the defining factor, I think, is that they have agency. Um, they have they have uh, choice over what they're learning, how they're learning it. Um, they are able to choose things that are meaningful to them, um, and they have the help of uh, adults who are inspiring them and motivating them and, and nudging them and pushing them and you know pushing them to places that maybe they can't go on their own, but. But they're, the kids are in charge. You know, the learner is the one that's really in charge. And um, again, you know, we use all these terms, learner-centered, student-centered. Um, I'm not so sure that we use those terms to the uh, extent that Saracen would, you know, d- define them or that I would define them. But I think it really, if you want joy and if you want um, passion and if you want real engagement, then I think you have to give kids as much agency as you can possibly give them, uh, given the realities and the circumstances of the world in schools today. Right? Yeah. We can't ignore those realities. We can't ignore the kids have to pass tests and you know do what many of us would consider to be stupid things, but you know they're they're still in place. But having said that, I don't think the two are mutually exclusive necessarily, and I do think that um, we can make really great gains in giving kids um, lots of, of chunks of time where they are joyful and passionate and interested. You know, one of the things that always interests me is when I hear people talk about, about genius hour. Right? That's the, another one of those things that a lot of schools are trying to implement. And, and whenever I talk to teachers who are doing genius hour, they rave about how interested their kids are, how passionate their kids are, all the great work that they're doing. And, um, you know, my, my kind of throwaway line is, well, if it's so good, why don't we just have curriculum hour? Why don't we make the rest of it genius, right? And so I, I do think that there are opportunities for kids to, to do that kind of work. And we're giving kids opportunities for that. I'm not sure we're giving them as much as we possibly could, but I think that's the first step. If you, you know, you're talking about solutions before, I think that's one of them is to try to find as much time that you can give kids choice, real choice over the what and the how, um, to, to, you know, do projects and um, to pursue questions that they are interested in. Um, and I think spend our time as educators creating conditions under which those types of activities can flourish, you know, instead of standing on our heads trying to make stuff that kids really don't want to learn or care about, um, you know, trying to make that interesting for them, which is, I think, what most teachers try to, you know, spend a lot of their time and energy doing, taking stuff that they know that kids don't really have a connection to, but trying to make it as palatable as they can or, you know, as, as engaging as they can, which is a lot of hard work. That's why you get a lot of teachers burning out, I think. Well, so why do, why do they do that? Why not just, you know, teach the things they know kids want to learn? Well, you, you know, the first question was why, you know, I think you said, asked, how did we get to this point? And I think accountability is a big piece of it, right? Because in many states, you as an educator are accountable based on the scores that your kids get. So you feel an allegiance to making sure that they get good scores on those tests. Um, and, um, you know, giving up, giving up the time that you used to spend in, I don't know, you called it this, but however you want to call it, in test prep or in going through the curriculum lockstep so that, you know, you made sure all of it was covered um, and that the kids were prepared I mean, it's a, it's a scary notion for a lot of teachers to, uh, to, to give that up. It's a, you, need, you need to have uh, some trust in the idea that if kids are learning passionately on their own, they're going to cover a lot of the curriculum and cover a lot of the skills they need to pass the test anyway. But you also have to be in a culture that supports that, um, one that you know, kind of supports innovation and, and doing things differently. And a lot of teachers just aren't in that type of situation. Yeah. Well, so let's build off uh, that accountability piece and segue to uh, the fourth idea that um, 
that described to Saracen. Um, and so, uh, number four, the educational system, quote-unquote system, has an oppressive impact. And when that system continues unseen and unacknowledged, progress is stifled. Um, and so, the, the translation, you know, the educational system doesn't serve teachers, students, parents, or schools. It serves itself. Um, yeah. I think the, the quote that you used, I think in the book, this is a system that nobody designed, nobody champions, nobody in their mind would duplicate, and almost nobody challenged. Um, and uh, I, I think um, an interesting assumption also within the text is that ignorance of the system perpetuates its worst attributes, uh, but that the system, the assumption is that the system is broken and it only serves itself. Um, I think that's a core assumption of, uh, you know, of this idea. Um, so uh, what, what, what would you say to um, that idea of the educational system having an oppressive um, I would in, I would generally agree. Um, I, I, I don't think that there's a lot of evidence that the system uh, was built for innovators or for people to um, be able to take their own direction in, in what happens, you know, in the learning context. I think the system was built for a very kind of standardized outcome. Um, I'm, you know, I take issue a little bit with some of the narratives and histories that are thrown around about, you know, the industrial era and all that kind of stuff. I mean, certainly, but schools have changed a lot since then. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, it really, the architecture of the school really hasn't changed that much, right? I mean, we, we still, we still have the same types of age groupings and subject groupings and assessments and power relations and all that kind of stuff that, um, you know, let Seymour Papert to say that, the, the system is is self-preserving to the effect that it almost has like an autoimmune response to change, right? Um, That's my, my favorite Papert quote. Um, and, and, you know, he used the example of technology and computers when we first brought them into schools. We put them in a lab down the hall, right? Because we were kind of pushing them out to the edge. And now we've evolved a little bit around that, but we still have a lab mentality, I think, in terms of our approach to technology. So, um, yeah, I think the system itself is I, I don't think the system's broken. I think the system's working really well. <laughs> you know, I think what we have to do is break it um, and keep trying to break it because uh, what it's not doing is producing productive learning contexts. Um, I think that's what Saracen would say. You know, that the, the, uh, the conditions and the structures that are in place are not conducive to wanting to learn more. Um, they're conducive to, I need to learn as much as I need to learn in order to pass the test and then, you know, move on to something else. And, and that'll, the, the idea of the architecture of the school can take us into the, the fifth um, the fifth idea. But before going into there, uh, who who is the object of this oppression? Um, who... Who is being affected by the, the educational system, um, you know, and, 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 and uh, its, its structures uh, continuing unseen or unacknowledged? Well, I, I think it's, you can make the case that it oppresses everyone within the system. Um, I, I think that certainly students, um, they're the brunt of most of that because they're, they lack agency, they lack choice, they lack freedom. Um, you know, Deb Meyer writes about the fact that uh, American public schools are probably the least democratic institutions in this democracy. And that, um, you know, students have very little choice or say in what happens to them. I think that's evidenced by the fact that 98% of all the workshops or professional development, things that I do opening days or whatever that I do, kids are not involved in that at all. They, they are not there. Their voices aren't, aren't privileged. You know what I'm saying? So I think... I think there's no doubt that students are oppressed by the system. I think teachers are oppressed. Um, teachers are oppressed today for lots of different reasons. Um, it's not a it's not a wonderful time to go into education um, in a lot of places in this country. Um, but I think that generally the system oppresses them again by the the ways in which they are held accountable by the kind of narrow definitions of success by. Um, cultures that really don't embrace innovation and, and don't, uh, don't in fact, uh, you know, kind of encourage innovation. Uh, and, and so that's a problem. And I think that administrators do, leaders, leadership within schools, I think, 
Um, in many ways, they feel oppressed because their hands are tied. Um, again, in terms of their of the accountability, not just of their own work, but of the, the entire school. Um, and because of the, Saracen again writes a lot about the power relationships that they have with parents and that they have with their board and that they have with community members and, and back and forth. So um, it's not, it, you know, again, it's not a system that's built for agency on any level, uh, really. Um, and if you, if you can create innovation, um, usually you are, uh, you know, you, you're successful for a short period of time, but then the pressures of the system tend to try to bring you back in, you know, um, it's like that godfather scene, right? <laughs> just when I thought it was, uh, you know, they, they pulled me back in and I've seen that over and over and over again, where innovation begins, but then leadership changes or something else happens, budgets or whatever else. And so that innovation gets kind of just, it just comes back to the norm. People get overwhelmed and tired and, you know, exhausted from trying to make, sustain it um, because there aren't a lot of systemic changes that are in place too. So I think it's pretty obvious that um, there's a lot of oppression happening in schools right now, even though we kind of deal with it, you know, it's not like people are walking off crying every day, but certainly they're limited in what they as uh, as I was thinking through this question and creating just a simple hierarchy uh, within um, within a school district, starting with district admin at the top, school admin um, as a second level, uh, teachers as the third level, students as the fourth level, parents as the fifth level. Uh, I think it was clear that on all of these levels, you have folks who, like you said, they lack agency. Um, you know, you have uh, at the district administration level needing to, you know, meet new standards um, or expectations, uh, accountability measures uh, laid out potentially by the state through, you know, new ESSA guidelines. Um, you've got principals now being, you know, hands tied being asked to do X, Y, or Z because of those. And then getting into, uh, like you said, teachers and students and then parents lacking a lot of agency as well. Um, and so on all of those levels, it feels like we're, we're seeing, um, that inability to really drive some change, um, and create those, uh, those productive contexts for learning, um, so if we get into number five, the system as it currently functions is intractable, not easily reformed, and reform efforts that ignore systematic regularities and inherent obstacles will predictably fail. Um, so translation, the educational system exists to perpetuate itself, reforms that do not address entrenched structures. Um, you talked about the architecture of the school uh, are, are bound to fail. Failure to address these structures tend to strengthen the very system they aim to change. Um, the Mass Customized Learning Alliance um, talks, uh, uses a metaphor of weight-bearing walls in the world of education. Um, and I think that that's a good metaphor to, um, you know, to, to get to the heart of the idea of the system being intractable. Um, and so assumptions, the system exists to perpetuate itself. The system is not easily changed. Attempts to change the system are often sabotaged by the system itself, um, which you alluded to earlier. Um, current structures in place serve to perpetuate an inefficient system. Uh, I think this gets into um, some potential solutions. Failure to address existing structures tend to strengthen the very system they aim to transform. Um, and finally, real change can only occur under a new paradigm that um, without... Uh, rethinking the way that schools have been structured, there, there's not going to be any real change. Any change that occurs is only going to be superficial and uh, end up, um, you know, serving serving the system itself. I think, yeah, my translation would be um, change in schools is almost nearly impossible. You know, I mean, it's it's when when we work with our leadership teams and you know folks in change school or wherever else. We're constantly saying this is the most difficult work you will ever take on if you're serious about it, you know. Um, because it, and, and we also say that if you really want to change school, it's much easier to go and start one than it is to change an existing school yeah. because of all the just the layers and layers and layers of narrative and history and and, and norms and all that kind of stuff that really has to be put up. You have to be willing to put it on the table and examine all of it, you know, and just pull it all back. Um, I, I get really depressed when I read Saracen, to be honest with you. And in this in this respect, 
at least, because I don't think that at the end, I don't know that he ever said these words or ever wrote them, but I, I don't, I wouldn't be shocked if at the end he thought it's not possible. Um, simply because of all the, the barriers that, you know, we've already talked about many of them. Um, I've come to the conclusion, we've come to the conclusion, you know, in, in my work with Bruce Dixon and Missy Emler and Change Goal Modern Learners that, um, you know, it really does require first and foremost a long-term conversation around what you believe in terms of what learning is. Mm -hmm. um, and then some really hard questions about what commitments you hold to kids and to the world. And um, that's kind of built on some work that was done by David Gleason um, in a book called At What Cost, which is one of my, I think, most, one of my favorite, most more recent books at least. But it's this idea that, you know, we say, and you asked me before, you know, what would I say as a parent? And I think most people in schools would also say they want their kids to be happy, they want them to be healthy, they want them to love learning, they want them to create things that are interesting and beautiful and meaningful in the world, right? We, if we got 25 educators together, I don't think it would be a very difficult conversation to come to consensus as to those commitments, first and foremost, that we have to kids. But we also have competing commitments because of the system. We have competing commitments to our to ourselves and to the school that, in many cases, are not aligned with what we want that's best for kids. Um, you know, we we make it a really highly competitive environment. Um, we we celebrate achievement, and we don't really lift up those kids who may be achieving it in other ways, but don't show it in terms of the college and career you know, type of traditional ways that we look at it. Um, we, uh, we're more than happy to sleep deprive kids um, in most cases, even though we know that that's not really good in terms of making them happy and healthy and motivated and, and all that kind of stuff. So um, it, it is interesting to me how much, how easy it is for us to say what we think is best for kids, how easy it is for us to um, articulate these are the conditions that we believe are the most powerful conditions for learning to happen, that you need passion and interest and it has to be real audience and real, you know, real purposes and it's safe and all those things, we can articulate all that. Yet there's this gap between all those things that we believe and say and what we actually do. Um, and so, um, if it, you know, another quote that I just, uh, remember from Gary uh, the other day, actually, that I'd written in a blog post about five years ago that I came across was, you know, Gary's, Gary says that schools get in trouble when they don't know what they believe, when they fail, when they then fail to articulate what they believe, and then when they fail to live what they believe, right? And I think that that's the biggest problem. Um, we need to go back, if we're really going to change existing schools, we need to go back and confront the gap in our belief systems and, and to really sit down and come to terms with who really are we? What do we really believe? You know, what do we really understand and know about learning? Is that happening? If not, why not? And then how do we move forward from there um, to reimagine the work then with a lens of modern technologies and modern opportunities and affordances for learning, which are very different today, obviously, from what they were even 10 years ago. And then with an understanding of what's possible in terms of practice these days. I, the other piece of it, you know, for me is I go to lots of places and when I show stuff that other schools are doing, people are just like, oh my God, <laughs> you know, like, wow, how do they do that? And yet, you know, that's, it's not rocket science. And, and so anyway, there's a transparency issue there as well that I think is very difficult. Yep, and uh, I think uh, one, th one thing that B. McGarvey from the MCL movement has said a bunch is, uh, you know, if you're not going to live up to your mission statement, you might as well just paint it over with white paint, not even bother having it uh, visible um, within right. the schools. Um, I mean, one of the things that, that we do also during um, some of our on-site workshops uh, is, you know, trying to help folks think about a new mission or vision for what learning looks like in their districts. And um, once that's developed, once you have that down um, and you're thinking about what to do next, you know, one of the things we come across are school districts with five, 10 initiatives going on, most of them disconnected to each other um, sure. with no real 
um, you know, no real plan uh, of attack for um, implementing any of them with fidelity. And if you have that mission or vision and you're thinking to yourself, okay, we, you know, have this idea of doing X, Y, or Z. Does that align with your vision? Great. You know what? Let's go for it. Does it actually improve um, our opportunities to provide real learning experiences for students? If it does, let's do it. If it doesn't, um, you know what? Maybe we should rethink it. But um, I'm seeing that a lot of folks are struggling, like you said, to really put that together um, and, uh, you know, and have a meaningful conversation uh, about what, what it should look like within their schools and within the districts. Well, I think the reality is every school has a mission and vision, not just about every school has a mission and vision. Um, the vast majority of schools, if you go walk into those schools and ask people what the mission and vision are, they have no idea what it is. They're not living it. It's something on a website, you know, they can go find it somewhere. So I think that's, that's a problem. But I, I do, again, think that there is uh, uh, just an urgent, urgent need on the part of educators to start with, what do you believe learning is? I'll just give you, you know, a quick story, just really fast. I was recently, I was with a leadership team of about seventy-five people. On. Um, basically, I'd gone on this school's website, and on one page, they had used the word "learn" learning seventeen times. And I was like, "Oh, this is great!" And they had some there was some some good rhetoric up there too. Actually, I was looking at it, and it was like pretty interesting. So I said to them, "Okay, so just grab, you know, there was a paper and pen. I said, just write down your personal definition of learning." And then after they did that, I had them at their tables just talk about, well, share out what you wrote, you know, and just talk about that for a couple of minutes. And then after that, I just said, okay, raise your hand if you had a table where everybody basically had the same definition of what learning is. No hands went up. And I said, I just made the point, you use that word 17 times on this website, yet there's no coherence in, that, in this room as to what that, what that word means. Why? What are you talking about up here? You have no idea what you're saying <laughs> when you do this. And I just, I look at the schools that I think are doing powerful work right now, right? All of them bring it back to some coherence around what learning is. They may not be, you know, as clearly articulate as some others, right? But they all come back to some principles or some norms or some understandings around this is what we think learning is. And so, their vision and mission are built on that. Their budgets are built on that. Their technology purchases are built on that. Their curriculum, pedagogy, everything comes back to, does this now, you know, promote or align to our understanding, our belief, our principles of what learning is? Um, I, I just, it floors me how few schools have done that work. And, you know, you talk about how, you know, we, we talked about how changes don't sustain or initiatives don't sustain or, that's why they're not rooted in something that um, that everyone understands, that everyone has had a chance to talk about, that there is coherence around, and that everyone at least buys into a mission and vision that's built on that, and they can say, this is where we're going, this is why we're going there, this is what it looks like. The rest of it, in most schools today, it's like all over the place, right? Little individual things that people are doing makes the school day extremely inconsistent for kids, and for teachers, and um, it's just not a functional way of, of learning when, especially if you're trying to change school. So uh, this, I think, takes us into number nine um, about the democratic principle. Uh, so the democratic principle, while celebrated in America, is undermined or ignored in our schools or school right. systems. Um, and I think... The translations of school, that I have, schools are hierarchical organizations. Those affected by decisions are not included in the decision-making process. And this is a most un-American practice. Um, I think that the, uh, so true. <laughs> the democratic principle is certainly, I think it's a foundational component of the American idea, of the rhetoric behind the American idea. Um, I think obviously much less a reality in practice throughout American history. Um, but the idea of the democratic principle certainly, I think, without a doubt, seems to be undermined or ignored in schools. It's a key, it's a key feature of the system, the lack of decision-making power, um, the lack of, uh, of input into um, really shaping schools. And so we've talked about lacking a mission or a vision. I think that directly relates to this idea right here of not empowering multiple stakeholders to come together and, and have those kinds of conversations um, to really 
discuss like what what we want for what we want for our kids. Um, so uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave it there, and would love to to hear your thoughts. Well, and and what kids want for themselves too. You know, I mean, one of the most interesting models for schools that is way way out there is Sudbury schools, and um, Sudbury schools basically. Uh, have no classes, no bells, no curriculum, no no age groupings. Basically, they are places where kids can come and um, if they want to learn how to play guitar for two years, they just learn how to play guitar. That's what they work on. They work on whatever is interesting to them. Teachers engage them and and you know help them with whatever questions they have. If they're if they need to know certain principles or certain you know pieces of subjects, math or whatever else, they will. They will teach them upon on request. Um, and, you know, the interesting thing is, too, that Sudbury School is basically kids graduate, go to college. I mean, they end up being normal people, you know. Um, but one of the things that I love about Sudbury School is that kids have a voice in every single decision that's made in the school, from hiring to firing to budgets to everything else. There is a school council. Every child has voice. Um, and that is just the expectation, you know, that's the, that's the, the, the feature, right? Um, and um, I think that there's so much that can be learned about being a responsible, respectful, interactive citizen when you are asked to participate <laughs> in that type of an environment, you know? And um, most kids in most public schools have no say in anything that happens to them. Um, which on the face, like I said before, when quoting, you know, Deborah Meyer, I mean, on the face of it, it's, it's, the irony is just rich, um, you know, especially in this country and um, is, I, I think, does a great disservice to our kids um, because not only aren't we, aren't they participating in it, but we're not modeling it, you know, we're not, we're not living it in our own relationships and, and you know, if you really want to go down the path, teachers don't have a lot of say necessarily what happens to them in lots of places and so anyway yeah I think that that's a that's a huge piece of it um, and one of the reasons again why it's so difficult to to change schools I think if more people had more power it'd probably be easier to have those conversations and move things down the road have, have you ever seen the movie Accepted? Nope. So it's uh, it's just kind of a goofy comedy uh, from 2006 about a bunch of students who do not get into college. They do not get anywhere in anywhere. So they start their own college. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm not going to throw in any spoilers, but it's, it's just an interesting <laughs> critique of, uh, you know, of our educational system. Yeah. Um, and so uh, if you're looking for something totally mindless, um, but possibly <laughs> incredibly smart. That's something um, relevant, yes. <laughs> um, well, so I, I, I have to ask, is if, if I'm listening to that and I hear as a parent, my student's going to go learn how to play guitar for two years. Um, when or six. Or six years, yeah. They're, let's say they're 12 years old. Um, <laughs> like, What about math? What about reading? What about uh, social studies? What about science? Um, how can I how can I accept that that's a good use of their time without seriously like having concerns about their future? Well, I mean, so I would I would take that at a serious level and a, at a somewhat cynical level, right? So I think one question I would ask back and say is, well, how much of chemistry and science and history and math do you remember yeah. from? what you took in school yeah. and let's add up all the hours that you spent doing that stuff and compare it to what you actually know and use. Um, and there are hundreds, if not thousands of hours for that. Reading is the one that I think is a little bit different, right? Because that's kind of basic literacy and, and, and um, at the, the higher levels that you were able to read, I think the more possibilities you have in order to engage you know, with different ideas and to learn. And so I think that that's a really important one. But I also think, too, that the idea that every kid has to read by third grade is just, it's just stupid. Kids will read when they have a need to read, when they have a passion to read or an interest. I hear stories all the time about kids who, you know, eight, nine, ten-year-old kids who didn't read, and then all of a sudden they came home or they went to someplace and they saw, a, a, you know, a, a certain book or a, a 
what do they call those, you know, um, Japanese comic books, um, manga or whatever it is, right? And anyway, they got they got excited about that and they kind of learned to read on their own. I think so, long, long answer, um, but I think the bottom line is, uh, first of all, we have to trust our kids a little bit more and, and trust the process that a lot of those things uh, will come to us as we need them and that you become more adept and more literate, I think, when you read the things that you care about um, and that are meaningful to you than when you're forced to read stuff that just make no sense to you. And then the other piece of it, like I said, is, um, you know, we spent a whole lot of time learning a whole bunch of stuff that we forgot right after the test, never used afterwards, um, that probably didn't have very much of an impact on our lives, a positive impact on our lives. In many cases, it had a detrimental impact on our lives because we were told we were stupid or, we, you know, whatever else. Um, and I, I just, I don't buy that argument that they're going to be in some way, um, you know, behind the curve in terms of their potential for success in the future because they played guitar for six years. I think um, that's not all they're doing, obviously, in those schools. They're participating in those, in those democratic conversations. They're learning about all sorts of other things as they go through that. But what they're also learning is how to learn really, really deeply about something. And, you know, those kids who pursue things over time come up against challenges and failures and roadblocks and they learn to overcome those. They learn how to seek out help. They learn all sorts of really powerful things about learning that I don't think our kids in, in, in public schools or in regular schools have a lot of chance to do. They don't have a lot of opportunity to do that because most of what they learn, you know, the old saying, right, it's a mile wide inch deep. They don't really go very deeply into anything. And, um, I think that that's one of the prerequisites for learning is that you have to struggle through stuff. You have to be willing to deal with failure and to, to overcome roadblocks in the service of something that you care about, you know, something that you want to get that answer. And so you keep pursuing. Yeah. And you're talking about resilience and, uh, mm -hmm. yeah. And really, um, I think just building out the capabilities to, you know, to, to, to overcome obstacles when, when you're faced with them instead of, you know, always being given, given the path and being told what to learn. Right. And, you know, a lot of parents will say, well, where's the rigor? There's no rigor. You know, <laughs> like, oh, watch a kid who's really into something, who really cares about it, who really wants to do something with it. There's a lot of self-created rigor within that process, you know. Um, and I think that that's, at the end of the day, what we want. We want kids who can build that into their own learning lives, definitely. Yeah, no doubt. Kids who are excited about the things that they're learning and not just yeah. like they need to learn um, about the things that they're told are important. Um, so moving on to, we'll, we'll talk about one more. Um, sustained and productive context of learning, this is number seven, uh, cannot exist for students that they do not simultaneously exist for teachers. Um, so uh, there are power relationships between teachers and parents, power relationships between teachers and administrators. Um, the way that the use of power replicates itself is absolutely fascinating, I think, um, but we'll, we can save that for another another conversation. But um, according to Saracen, teachers generally feel disrespected by admin. Um, they're left out of the decision-making process because admin oftentimes don't believe they're capable to be a part of it. Um, makes me think about a little bit little bit of DC's work and admin are in one of positions. Um, they're the socializing agents in the teacher-admin relationship. Um, and uh, I think it creates some resentment among teachers. Um, the ability, inability to... Um, to, uh, to exercise their, their own agency. So, um, you know, what structures are in place that prevent teachers' development? Um, and why are teachers not allowed to be learners in the classroom? Or, sorry, learners in their, in their environments? So, I mean, I think it, that last question is the one that's really interesting. And we look a lot at cultures. Um, I, I read a lot of Peter Senge, um, a lot of Russell Acoff, um, you know, people who are, Kind of systems thinkers and, and also people who are looking at how do cultures within the workplace or within in schools, Peter Senge, I mean, wrote a book called Schools That Learn, which is, is fascinating. But um, I, I think it's really interesting that, that the vast majority of cultures that exist in schools are teaching cultures. If you look at all the PD that teachers get, it's about how to be a better teacher, 
It's about pedagogy. It's about improving outcomes. It's about, you know, raising reading scores, whatever. It's all about how, how are you technically, how do you technically get better at the craft of teaching? Teachers, by and large, are not seen as learners um, by anyone. Kids don't see them as learners. Um, admins don't really see them as learners. We talk about professional learning all the time, but it's really not about um, what the professionals want to learn about. It's the same type of agency issues that kids have, that you know, teachers, the things that they really want to go deeply into are not usually supported. They're not given time. They're not certainly not compensated for the time that they put into this. So what I love when Saracen says that, I just think it's, it's crucial. If we're going to create learning environments and classrooms for kids that are based on passion, interest, time, agency, doing real work, solving real problems, collaborating with others, all that kind of stuff, then we have to create those same conditions for teachers. And what I love is when I see schools like uh, American School of Bombay, when I see schools like Scarsdale Public Schools in New York, other places where they really encourage teachers to learn deeply, um, either by doing um, classroom research, action research types of projects in the classroom, or simply by going and, and pursuing other interests that they have, that they want to they go into depth. And they may not have anything to do with classroom, but they have a lot to do with learning how to learn and thinking about learning and reflecting on learning and all that type of stuff. So, again, I think it's a difficult path if we say that we want kids to be really deep and powerful learners, but when, then we don't privilege teachers being deep and powerful learners in classrooms as well. Um, it's almost like saying, well, um, here, go learn how to drive from this person who doesn't really drive a lot or doesn't really know how to drive very much, you know, or isn't very good at driving. Uh, we wouldn't do that um, yet. If we want learners, we need them to be with learners. Um, and uh, I do think it's interesting that I think the, the second most popular online, free online course in the world right now from San Diego State is learning how to learn, <laughs> which is, you know, it's pretty cool. I mean, there's obviously an interest in it, um, but we have to create those conditions. I think Saracen's spot on with that. It's just very difficult to, um, to make those things happen for kids if we're not making them teachers as well yeah so one of the one of the things that we've been doing again during our during some of the workshops that we do and trying to get folks to rethink uh, their their learning environments is we'll ask them to basically close their eyes and picture a student picture a teacher and then you know write out what they're seeing and uh, do it a second time but instead of seeing a student you're seeing a learner and instead of seeing a teacher you're seeing an experienced or professional learner um, and just that change of vocab uh, can uh, create yeah. a shift in what kinds of classrooms they're they're seeing and when you talk about providing more student agency. I think a core component of that at the same time is providing teacher agency as well as creating a learning environment where everybody's everybody's learning from each other. And I think technology presents a, a unique pathway towards this where, you know, you, you think about, well, teachers saying, I'm not sure how to do this. I'm not sure how to, um, you know, use this specific application. I'm not sure how to, uh, you know, create my own podcast or create a video or whatever. You know what? I guarantee you that you have at least half of the students in your class are able to do that on their yeah. own. Um, and so let's let's learn from them, but also let's create opportunities for um, yeah for, for teachers to to really develop as those as those learners in the classroom. Because, like you said, you want learners learning from from other learners. And I think to just uh, kind of you know one last point on that that the schools that I've seen that do that really well. They just, they make the time for it. And, and you know, they, they, that time piece is a priority, whether it's a day, a quarter for teachers just to get together to reflect or whether it's, you know, every Wednesday morning from 7 to 8.30, we have a late opening because teachers are going to sit and talk and do PLCs, you know, which can be done really well or not so well. But, but you know what I mean? So it's something that that schools look at and they say, yeah, you know, we have to make time for this. It's not something that we can expect people to build in um, to their current, the, the current schedule or the current setup. Um, and, and then 
you know, even at the end of the day, one of my favorite schools in Australia does a two-day all-staff retreat, you know, and it's a smaller school, only about 45 teachers. But all they do is talk about Vygotsky and Dewey and Montessori and Lucy. You know, go figure. <laughs> you know, what a concept that teachers would get together and just talk about learning. And, yeah. and um, yeah, makes common sense, but most people don't don't want to put it in time. Yeah. I mean, it gets back to uh, the, the idea of the system being intractable and that idea of weight-bearing walls. I mean, time is a core weight-bearing wall, Absolutely. but why is time one of those weight-bearing walls? It's because of accountability. It's because we need to get through, you know, uh, this curriculum so that my students can succeed on the test at the end of the year. Um, and there's just not time to, you know, provide those learning opportunities to... Which is, at the end of the day, pretty much a BS argument everywhere you are. If you if you want to make time, you can. Yeah. If, you, yeah. if you you know if you look at at that as a priority, as something that um, is good for kids. Again, if that's one of our commitments, we'll make time for it. But yeah. we just don't. We don't. First, we can say that, but you know we don't have time. But what we're really saying is we don't care about that. Well, one of the one of one of the data points on our, our the TNL platform is um, you know how often do you talk about technology during grade level or department meetings? And I've heard from you know a few school districts that they do not have grade level or department meetings. And uh, the last teaching job that I had, um, the sixth grade team met every morning except for Wednesdays. Um, we met for forty five minutes every single morning. Um, the kids had uh, electives during that time, but. I mean, our, our success was predicated on uh, knowing what each other was doing, knowing what our students were doing. Um, you know, I mean, even something as simple as, you know, uh, you know, Johnny came in this morning and clearly was uh, struggling. Something must have happened at home. Let's give him a little bit of love. Or, um, you know, he was you know, just telling a teacher to check in on him or whatever it might be. But the idea that you're not even having those opportunities, um, again, it gets into time. And if you want to make it a priority, you'll find the time. For it. Absolutely. Yeah, to make it happen. Um, okay, well, uh, that feels like a good place to um, to stop. I feel like we could have, you know, talked for <laughs> talked for hours. The idea, the one that I wanted to get to, power relationships, I think is so fascinating. And uh, I think when it comes to people outside the world of education, that's probably um, not something that they're as familiar with. Um, so if you are interested, I would certainly recommend you... Uh, Take a look at the skeptical visionary um, and read some of Saracen's other work because uh, it'll it'll change the way that you you think about education. Absolutely. Um, well, thanks, thanks for the so, time, Matt. I really yeah, appreciate it. Yeah. yeah, of course. Thanks so much. I appreciate your time, and um, I hope we we can do it again soon. Yeah, me too.